All right, this is Edward Sutherland, and you're listening to Leader Lab. So who are you and what do you do? Uh, so I'm Edward Slerland. I'm professor of Asian studies at UBC and also Canada research chair in embodied cognition and Chinese thought, which is a title I made up myself. It's just a nice part of being Canada research chair. Um, and I also have adjunct appointments in philosophy and psychology here. Yeah, and it's it's actually it's a pretty awesome title even if you made it up because it's sort of this kind of core theme of your of of the book, trying not to try, and and we'll get into that for a second. But first, I have to confess publicly on the air that when I got a copy of this book, my immediate reaction was sort of like, eh, eh, I don't know that this is necessarily going to be fit. A- ancient Chinese secrets, right? Um, yeah. All that sort of stuff. And then and then there's this little word science sort of thrown in. But what I find is amazing. I was reading through it. It is steeped in modern Western scientific research on why these sort of Eastern ancient ideas are actually really, really quite valid. I mean, there's easily 30, 40 pages of notes towards the tail end of the book, and then a bibliography. There's a ton of research going on here, which is exactly like your title would suggest, right? So there you go. Yeah. Now, we had debates about the title and the subtitle. So I wanted to actually a subtitle. We It was always going to be trying not to try. I wanted a subtitle that highlighted more. This was about science, uh, maybe something with cognitive science in it, um, and also, you know, highlighting that this is based on um, serious scholarship in early China. But you know, the marketing people decide what the subtitle is going to be. They pretend to consult me, but they end up doing whatever they want. Um, so there's a lot of things I don't have control over as a when it's a trade book. So no, I, I I totally feel you. I would have never thought of my own book subtitle on my own, and I you know I kind of like it. It's it's very much a weird, delicate balance of how do we get at the core of what this whole thing is about, um, while also keeping it sort of pithy. And it takes it takes a lot of effort to figure that out, which is ironic. Because the book is trying not to try. And I think it's a really interesting concept to me is what you call wei, which is this sort of um, ancient concept of, of embracing spontaneity, sort of trying trying not to try, um, taking a little bit more almost flow but almost stronger than flow approach. I'm lumping a bunch of different concepts from the book together. All, all that to say that these are not things that, I mean, I'm an American. These are not things that we are used to at all. We are used to grit and perseverance and pushing yeah. through and never quitting. And and yet, you know, your your advice to, to leaders, to managers, to people who just want to get further in their career in life, try harder not to try. Yeah. Yeah. So the main message is is that we do live in a culture that emphasizes if you want to achieve your goals, you got to just work and try and try harder. And if you run into a barrier try harder. <laughs> Just keep going, right? I see this in my students. You know, they, um, they're having trouble with a paper and or they're having trouble studying for an exam and their, their response is to pull all-nighters and just keep trying harder. Um, I see this in colleagues, you know, or need to make a creative breakthrough in their work and they just, um, they kind of grind and keep grinding at it. And that's often uh, counterproductive. So if it was the case that grit always paid off, I mean, obviously, work and trying it matters. You have to try, and all of the not trying strategies are really best seen as correctives to people who have tried but then don't know when to stop. Um, there are a lot of areas in life where uh, trying is completely counterproductive. So, creativity, personal charisma, happiness, uh, love of learning. So, I think. Um, 
you know, we tend to, we want our kids to do well academically because we know that's important for success in life. And so we send three-year-olds to cram schools to get into the best preschools, to get into the best kindergartens. And, um, and the danger is that all that cramming and making them do things is actually extinguishing any kind of genuine love or joy for learning and reading and thinking. Um, and the ironic thing is that the, you know, the home of cram culture, East Asia, which is where this Uwe comes out of, it's ironic, um, is now starting to turn trying to adopt at elite schools in Beijing and other uh, major urban areas. People are starting to adopt more kind of Montessori type models from the West because they're realizing they're producing kids who just don't, they burn out or they don't really love what they're doing and and that's a problem so love of learning is not something you can force into your kids it's going to happen or not so that's mm. we got to realize when both in terms of our own efforts and in terms of our efforts to whatever motivate employees motivate our students motivate our children there's times when trying and pressure and work is just actually taking you in the opposite direction you want to go. For those that might be a bit unfamiliar with that Uwe concept, tell us a bit more about where that comes out of. And then more recently, what your research has found kind of in support of that. I love the idea that you said you had said that um, a lot of places in, in East Asia are sort of re-embracing this idea that they kind of constructed. For some of us, this is an idea we've never been presented to. How, how do we do this? What does this look like? Yeah, so uh, uwe literally means not doing or not trying, but it's a better translation, I argue, is something like effortless action. So it's a state where you're completely unself-conscious, you lose a sense of yourself as an agent, uh, you don't have any feeling of exerting effort, and yet everything works perfectly. You're perfectly skillful, everything goes the way it should go, and you emerge feeling satisfied and having accomplished this great thing. Uh, there's also the, another important idea that goes with Uwe is this idea of, that's unfortunately pronounced duh in modern Mandarin. It sounds a little uh, funny, but it's, uh, it's often translated as virtue, probably best rendered as charismatic power. But one of the reasons you're effective when you're in Uwe is because you have this power, duh, that essentially relaxes people around you and makes them trust you. It makes them want to follow you if you're a Confucian leader. And so uh, one of the reasons Uwe works socially is because you have this power. So uh, there's, they're, they're trying to achieve this state. These early Chinese thinkers are trying to achieve a state of spontaneity. And they think that with that spontaneity comes effectiveness physically. So you're very skillful in the physical world. But also socially, you have this kind of char charisma or power that helps you move through the social world effectively. And uh, from a contemporary cognitive scientific perspective, we're we're understanding a lot better what a modern equivalent of wu-wei is, essentially uh, letting your hot cognition, uh, your tacit, implicit cognition do the work and not interfering with your conscious mind. We have a very good understanding of why functioning in that way is so effective, so how tacit skills develop and how they work. Um, and we also have, I, I have some theories about, just from an evolutionary perspective, why we like spontaneity why we can detect when people are trying and why we don't like that socially. So mm -hmm. there's a, a, at the end of the book, in particular, I tie this all together and explain why uh, spontaneity and charisma hang together and why it just has to be the case that there is a tension involved in trying to be spontaneous. It's, it's paradoxical from a cognitive scientific perspective. You're basically using 
your conscious cognitive control regions to shut themselves down. It's like trying to take apart a bicycle while you're riding on it. So it is directly paradoxical. And then the fact that it is directly paradoxical explains why we value spontaneity as a social signal of trustworthiness because it's not something you can turn on consciously like a light switch. So there's a, I think there's, from a contemporary perspective, a lot of this early Chinese theorizing about the power of spontaneity and its connection to uh, charisma makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I, I really resonated with the elements of it, uh, of the charisma because you know, as, a, as a speaker that also teaches students a class that, on how to give business presentations, how to pitch business ideas, all of those sort of things, most common thing I deal with is, oh, I'm just, I'm just nervous or the student just comes off as really trying trying difficulty and 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 they come to me and go well how do you how do you get less nervous and you're sort of like i don't i don't really know yeah uh, of course yeah. now now i know there's this way thing i can start talking to them about but it's it's sort of weird that I, I i it almost sort of speaks to this idea of well maybe there's just this genetic gift from you know the the gods that allows a certain person <laughs> to be charismatic and and of course i'm i'm not really in line with with that idea i'm more in line with the idea of like well it takes some work it takes some development but it's so it's not necessarily just not trying it's not try it's it's how you not try in essence and how you've learned not to try how you've learned to sort of turn turn that um <clears throat> turn that tune that down and get be a little bit more spontaneous and that sort of a thing which which not only signals like trust but it also signals that you're comfortable with your environment and therefore everybody else is at ease too Yep, exactly. Yeah, so the you know the the Chinese all face this tension, the try not to try tension. They want you to be spontaneous. None of them think you're spontaneous right now in the way you should be. So you need to be spontaneous in some different way. So how do you try to be spontaneous in a different way? It's exactly the same tension you have when you are going out to give a talk or you're going to a job interview and you know people say, "Oh, just be relaxed. Be yourself." have fun. <laughs> it's like, okay, that's great advice, but how do I be myself if I'm not feeling like myself? Um, so you need to do something. If you're in a situation where you're not feeling wu-wei and you know you need to be wu-wei, you do need some something to do. And so that's where the four different strategies, so I lay out in the book the uh, and try not to try the four basic strategies that the early Chinese developed for getting somebody into wu-wei. You've got the carving and polishing, the kind of work at it, work at it, and the working will fall away. You've got the embrace the uncarved block, you know, just stop trying and get in touch with your nature strategy. You've got the cultivate the sprout strategy. So you've got these potentials for way within you that you got to focus on and do a little cultivating to make them grow. And then you've got the uh, make your mind empty and just go with the flow strategy of Zhuang's at the end of the book. Um, and I think so none of these four strategies ever wins out. None of them is the guaranteed magic bullet that you need if you need to relax for a job interview or a talk. Um, and that's the reason that none of them ever wins out in early China. They could just keep cycling throughout the later East Asian religious traditions. Um, one gets declared the proper strategy, and then the other ones pop up again anyway. <laughs> and I think it's because no one of them uh, is appropriate for all situations and all people. So, I mean, genetic variation matters a lot. People have basic differences with regard to introversion and extroversion. They've got differences with regard to uh, conservatism and liberalism. So whether you're attracted to the just trust your nature thing or whether you think that 
cultural forums and trying are more important is going to depend on if you're inclined towards conservatism or liberalism. So it's probably the case that you know people vary personality-wise and different strategies are better for different people. And then specific situations call for different types of strategies. In some situations, and different life stages call for different strategies. So when you're kind of starting out in a new career or something, the strategy that may be appropriate is going to be different than people who are trained for a long time and need to learn how to just let go now. Hmm. Yeah, and and not to say that any one of the four strategies is is that I'm saying this one is the most important, but the one that, that really resonated with resonated with me was the one around the wood carver and and the block of wood and yeah. and how you sort of have let that work. Tell tell us actually let let me phrase it this way. Tell us what an ancient Chinese wood carver can tell us about how to try not to try. It was one of my favorite of the four strategies. Wood wood carver Ching. Yeah. So this, you know, the story is he's got this super high pressure commission to create bell stand. And people are amazed by his bell stands. They think they were made by spiritual beings because they're so beautiful and someone says well how do you do it and he says well this is how so I get the commission and I sit and he doesn't tell us what he's doing when he's sitting but he's doing something it's <laughs> some kind of meditative practice and he says uh, you know on the first day I forget about the money I'm gonna make and I forget about the fame and he goes through all these different stages of forgetting so he's gradually what's going on is gradually forgetting external distractions, extrinsic motivations is how we might put it from a contemporary perspective. So he's forgetting about the money, he's forgetting about the fame, he's forgetting about the pressure. And then at the end he says, I actually forget that I have four limbs and a body, which is kind of a weird thing to say. But I think the point there is that he's he's lost completely stripped away his self-consciousness. He's not reflecting consciously on what he's doing anymore. And he says, once I do that, I can go out into the woods and I wander around until I see the bell stand in a tree. And I just cut away the part that's not part of the bell stand. Um, and this is strikingly, uh, it's identical actually to what Michelangelo supposedly said about his carving. So I just, uh, you know, I see the statue in a piece of marble and I just cut away what doesn't belong. I'm not really doing anything. So you have, when you're in this state, you're incredibly successful and you also have a feeling that you're not doing anything, that something else is doing the work or you're just kind of um, – I have this feeling with writing. So um, if I, when I'm lucky and I'm in the writing zone, I do have a feeling that I'm just taking dictation from somewhere. And I'll sometimes wake up like at 3 a.m. with entire pages written by somebody. <laughs> it wasn't by me. Um, and I just write them down. And so um, you do have this, artists, I think, and writers have this experience a lot where you have these breakthroughs when you can forget about external pressures and all the other conscious stuff that impinges on your skill and actually just let your, your embodied mind do its job. Yeah, from 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 the creative set, I think it's something that that it, it honestly brings up these ideas of almost a, a mysticism, a spirituality to it all. But what I what I love about that story, especially in contrast to uh, Michelangelo's version of that story, is that it starts with I forget about the money, I forget about this constraint, I forget about, and it, it's not it's it's forgetting about all of those things that distract us from that sort of purpose. I think to me at least, there's so many different things we we live in an always on, always blinking, pinging, phones buzzing world 
that that idea that if you really want to to reach that sort of limit of your contribution to the world, your contribution to the organization, your contribution to the people that are entrusted to you, start with forgetting about all of the other things that might seem like they matter, but they don't really matter. What yeah. matters is finding the bell stand in in the tree. Yeah. And the problem is, you know, we set up our lives so just from a managerial perspective or business perspective. We cons- we set up workspaces at the- these days in a way that allows very little room for this forgetting and focusing to happen. So you're constantly um, being surrounded by other people, you know, in these open workspaces or talking all the time. It's very hard to get time alone. It's very time hard to get quiet. Um, and there is this constant... Uh, you know, emails and texts and pings that you have to respond to. It's very difficult in that kind of environment to obtain any kind of focus. And, you know, your unconscious is often, if you're well-trained and you know your stuff, your unconscious is often working on important solutions to problems that you're facing. But if you never create any space to let it tell you what it's figured out, you never hear the answer. <laughs> you never see the bell stand in the tree, right? Um, so there, I do think there's an extent to which we overscript and overpack our days because we think that'll make us produce more, but actually it probably doesn't. Yeah, no, I totally agree. One of the one of the big messages I have ever since uh, my book on the myths of creativity came out was is this idea of it, it's not this coming external force. What it really is is it's a period of incubation that precurses yeah. these sort of eurekas because scientifically that incubation allows you to get back in touch with that subconscious that's been working on these ideas. I love the way you put it. So you can actually hear the answers that your subconscious wants to tell you. You're finally in that in that position. So if you're having trouble with a lot of those things as a listener, if you are, you should probably try harder not to try, right? So you're, you're trying too hard. And one of the best ways to do that, pick up trying not to try the ancient Chinese art and the modern science of spontaneity. Um, Ed, Ed, Ted, whatever you want to go by today. Um, I want to sort of shift from the book and, and talk about you and talk about some of your influences and, and where you're headed. First question being, what are you reading right now? Yeah, so I usually have an academic book and then a non-academic book I have at any given time. So I'm reading the academic book right now is Ian Morris. He's a, a historian, classicist at Stanford. It's called The Measure of Civilization. And it's about applying quantitative methods to the study of history. So this relates to a big... I also... One of the things I do on the side is run this uh, huge international project on the evolution of religion and cooperation. So one of the things we're doing is is trying to approach his history from a quantitative perspective and try to test hypotheses about history against the historical data. So yeah, that, he, that's totally a side project. Yeah. yeah that's just, I, got a lot of, I got a lot of stuff going on. Um, and my more pleasure book is um, spacing on his first name now, but Knausgaard. So he's a Norwegian author who wrote this. Um, he's written this, I think it's eight volumes now or something. It's an enormously long, essentially autobiography. It's called My Struggle. So I just finished book one, and I'm just starting book two. Um, and it's you know it's uh, it's it's been compared to Proust. You know. It's, uh, about the details. It's him remembering his childhood and kind of reflecting on his life. And if he gave a summary of the plot, it would sound incredibly boring. <laughs> it's about dropping kids off at daycare. And, um, but it's the, it's the details and the kind of finding beauty in these everyday events and, and reflections on your past um, that's, that's appealing about it. 
So, so far, so good. I just started book two. And the uh, the next question I was going to ask you is what's next for you? What are you looking at? But but clearly, uh, reading book three, four, five, six, seven, and eight yeah. <laughs> is also is also next for you. But but what else? You you've got a lot of different uh, projects going on. You call them side projects, but some of them are, are other people's whole careers. Uh, what what are you looking at on the horizon for you? Well, the main my main job right now is kind of I was facetious slightly. Uh, this, my main job is running this big project at the moment, so that's a full time oh, wow. admin position. And then we're doing lots of uh, we're constructing a database of religious history, so that's taking up a lot of my time and doing experimenting with uh, uh, basically automated statistical approaches to analyzing texts. So we have lots of these online texts, and we're we're experimenting with different techniques for how to. Uh, how to do large-scale data mining, essentially, um, to extract patterns about meaning from these these, these uh, electronic texts. So a lot of digital humanities stuff. Um, I'm also working on, uh, I'm thinking about a next book, so I'm probably going to write something on uh, alcohol and civilization, and more generally intoxication and civilization. So I think it's going to be called Drunk on Heaven. <laughs> that, <laughs> was a, that was, a, that was a, a chapter in the book, too, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's a it's a chapter of the book, and it is there's bits of this in trying not to try about the uh, relationship between uh, alcohol. Alcohol is one example. Uh, any type of intoxicant, or or dancing, singing, anything that downregulates your conscious mind, seems to be connected both to enhance creativity and then enhance social trust. And so one of the things I want to explore in the book is why. The next book is why human beings everywhere seem to immediately, as soon as they can figure out how to do it, ferment something or figure out whatever mushroom nearby will get you messed up, um, which is puzzling from an evolutionary perspective because you'd think groups that did that would be outcompeted by groups that didn't do that. Um, but one of my arguments is going to be that it has this uh, social function in tying people together into communities. So there's there's a lot in, in the book about not just these ancient... Uh, religious traditions, but also the science of, of down-regulating your prefrontal cortex, getting in touch with your subconscious mind, really unlocking creativity, innovation, and even the social trust that leaders need to let that creativity and innovation lead to growth, whether it's in business, in life, or an entire society. So I encourage you to check it out, Trying Not to Try, The Ancient Chinese Art and Modern Science of Spontaneity. Ed, Edward, thank you so much for joining us inside the Leader Lab. Thanks a lot. Hey everybody, it's David from the Leader Lab Podcast. I just want to thank you for being a part of this community and for listening to this podcast episode. And I want to remind you that you can get even more content from us if you connect with us online. We're at Twitter, twitter.com slash LDRLB, Facebook, facebook.com slash LDRLB. And of course, you can subscribe to this podcast in either iTunes or Stitcher, or just subscribe to our email newsletter and we'll email you every single time we post a new episode. Thanks so much for being a part of the community. Look forward to giving you even more great content.